Dan Ariely is a behavioral economist, best-selling author, and Duke University professor whose world-renowned work has helped clarify the psychology behind financial decision-making. His practical studies demonstrate the largely irrational inner workings of the everyday choices we think we make with the utmost logic and reason. His new book, Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter, explores how emotions play a powerful role in shaping our financial behavior. In a live conversation with Ivy, Ariely showed us how to navigate the psychological pressures of our inherently irrational behavior. Imagine there was no money technology and I just came to you every morning and I say, here's $100 for you to spend today. You would realize very quickly the opportunity cost. You would realize that if you spend lots of money on breakfast, you might not have money for lunch. If you spend money on lunch, you might not have money for a drink, Uber, and, and so on. What would happen if I gave you $700 every Monday? On Monday, you will not think about the opportunity cost. You'll say, I'm really wealthy. On by Thursday, you would realize you have opportunity cost, but it will be too late. And what would happen if I gave you credit cards and student loans and car payments and a mortgage? Now the trade-offs between now and later will be very fuzzy. Please enjoy our conversation with Dan Ariely, moderated by financial comedian and the co-author of Dollars and Cents, Jeff Chrysler. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Jeff. This is Dan. He runs a center for advanced hindsight. Yeah, there you go. There you go. We started. Perfect. <clears throat> Good night. Uh, so thank you all for joining us. I want to start this evening with three questions. Uh, raise your hand if you know, roughly speaking, within 10, 20 cents, the price per gallon to drive your car. Yeah? Okay. Keep your hand up if you know, roughly speaking, within 10, 20 cents, the price per gallon to heat your home. Okay, a few people. Okay. Raise your hand if you use a credit card. Yeah, pretty much everyone. Keep your hand up if at the end of the month you know exactly what your credit card bill will be. A few underemployed people here. <laughs> Showbiz. Raise your hand if at some point this week you've promised yourself you're going to get exercise the next day. All right. Keep your hand up if raising your hand is all the exercise you've gotten this week. <laughs> Surprisingly large number of people for LA. That's. Uh, that's why they have surgery. Uh, so we ask these questions because it shows how difficult it is to think about money and human behavior. The first question was essentially the same thing. What's the price per gallon of energy? In one case, with our cars, we know, but most of us don't know at home. The second question is about credit cards and about like, the, difference, the distance between time that we uh, you buy something and time we pay for it. Right? Like You know when you spend it all the time, but you don't have any idea how much you spend. And the third is really about self-control. Right? Even when we make promises to ourselves, we can break those promises, even when it's just to us. And so even if we learn what we should do with our money or other situations, we still have to fight our problems with self-control. And there really is a difficulty thinking about money to even get to that self-control issue. Because we all, we have a hard time thinking about money. Not that we don't think about it, we all think about it all the time, we obsess about it. Right? No one's watching the lifestyles of the poor and decrepit. Right? They're watching the rich and famous. Right? They want to be rich. We think about money all the time, how we can get it, how we can save it, how we can spend it. We don't think about how we think about it. And it's a real problem. Right? It's so much a part of our culture. It's so, it takes so much of our time and our mental energy that we could just think about it better and hope to improve. And that's what we try to do in the book, is show you how you're thinking about money, not to change who you are and change your human nature, but so that you can then use who you are and use human nature to create better systems and spend and save better. And we all need it. Like we found on the store, and I found myself talking to people of all income levels, all demographics, all levels of intelligence, that everybody has trouble thinking about money. Even me. Like, 
Before this, before making it big, before making it here, I went to Princeton, and at Princeton, my econ professors included uh, ben Bernanke and Alan Blinder and like the other white guy, and I just like, <laughs> like I studied from the best, and I was a smart guy. I understood what I should do in economics and financial situations, but it's not what I did, right? Because knowing what the right thing to do, knowing what a perfect economic actor do, uh, is supposed to do, doesn't translate to what a human does. And we humans, we have emotions, we forget things, we have a lot of competing issues, we have all these biases that we fall for. That's why we don't treat money like we should. And to start, I'd love to know, Dan, how should we treat money? Okay. <clears throat> so, so if you think about what money is all about, money is all about opportunity cost. Really, the, the wonderful thing about money is you could do lots of things with money, right? With every dollar in your, in your wallet, there's lots and lots of things you could do. So what does that mean? That every time you spend a dollar, you're taking away from something else. But what exactly are you taking away from? It's unclear. And what's interesting about this is the same nice thing about money, which means that you could buy with money lots and lots of things, also make thinking about money very, very difficult. So, so let's think about what you should be doing. Imagine you're going to buy a cup of coffee and it's $4. What should you be thinking? Is whether spending $4 on a cup of coffee is a better use of your money than all the other possible ways to use it now and later. Right? That's, that's what you're supposed to do. How many of you do that? Very hard. Are you dating him? <laughs> we, should, we should talk later, but... Uh... The lights flickered as soon as he lied. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's actually very hard to, to think about all, uh, all the opportunity costs. And, and it's not just about small things, it's even about large things. So a few years ago, we went to a Toyota dealership, and we talked to people who were about to buy a new car. These were people who already had a contract and knew what the monthly payment was going to be. And we said, look, if you're going to go ahead and buy this new car, you have to give up something. What are you going to give? And people had no answer. Why? Because they never thought about it. They didn't come prepared with, with a realization of what they're giving up. So, so we pushed. And we said, look, something has to give. What? The most common answer we got was, if I buy a Toyota, I can't buy a Honda. And that's true, but that's not the right answer, right? The right answer would have been, it's eight weeks of vacation over the next three years, and 700 books, and 30 lattes, and something else. A trade-off between now and later across categories. But the reality, it's very hard to think about money this way. And, and not only is it difficult to think about money this way, technology is making it difficult. Imagine there was no money technology, and I just came to you every morning, and I say, here's $100 for you to spend today. You would realize very quickly the opportunity cost. You would realize that if you spend lots of money on breakfast, you might not have money for lunch. If you spend money on lunch, you might not have money for a drink, Uber, and, and so on. Right? But what would happen if I gave you $700 every Monday? On Monday, you will not think about the opportunity cost. You'll say, I'm really wealthy. On by Thursday, you would realize you have opportunity cost, but it would be too late. What would happen if I gave you the money every first of the month for the whole month? And what would happen if I charge you taxes the following April? And what would happen if I gave you credit cards and student loans and car payments and a mortgage and credit cards? Now the trade-offs between now and later will be very fuzzy. If you go ahead today and buy whatever, a bicycle for $1,000, 
What exactly are you not going to get? Where exactly is, is the money coming from, right? So, so it's not that mortgages and credit cards and so on are not interesting financial advances, but all of our financial advances are muddying the water on the trade-offs that we're making and making it harder to think about opportunity cost. And in general, because we can't think about opportunity cost the right way, we end up thinking about money the wrong way. And there's lots of wrong ways to think about money, and we'll uh, talk, talk about a few of those. But it's interesting to think about the fact that it's really difficult to do the right thing, so we do the wrong thing. We have all kinds of heuristics, all kinds of shortcuts, all kinds of strategies that we use to think about money. They're not good, necessarily, but they make us feel as if we're making the right decision. As we've talked about the book in the last couple of weeks and just writing it, I've been really interested with your just thoughts about technology. Because one of the things that most technology does, financial technology, is it reduces what we call This the is it? You're going already? We just started. You're coughing too much. I see. Okay, that's okay. Thank you. <clears throat> the opportunity cost of staying and coughing versus leaving. <clears throat> you didn't realize that Dan would call you out. That's all it was. Um, bring some back for us. Okay, so I was saying technology, one of the things it does, why it is such a challenge, is because it reduces what we call the pain of paying. And the pain of paying is, as it sounds, it, it's the fact that we feel a real pain when we pay. When we're conscious of paying for something, handing over a bill, it causes physiological feelings of discomfort. Right? And what that discomfort does, what that pain does, is it should make us stop and think and decide about opportunity costs, whether or not we should spend. But technology reduces that pain of paying. Right? And if you think about it, pain normally serves a purpose, right? You break your leg, you, it's screaming pain, you know you should go get help. Right? You put your hand on a stove, that burn, that pain tells you to take your hand off. Right? You ask Scout Megan Flaherty in seventh grade, and you say, hey, it's Jeff, you wanna go out? And she says, Jeff who? It, uh, <laughs> you become a comedian. Um, but we don't listen to the pain, right? We don't learn that lesson when it comes to paying and technology, and in other things, because we don't feel the pain, instead we numb the pain. We make it so that we feel it even less. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld has a great routine about helmets. He says, you know, humans were doing all these activities that were bashing in their heads, and instead of stopping the head bashing activity, they just put a little piece of plastic on their heads. Same with us, instead of like, feeling the pain of paying, we put these little pieces of plastic, these little credit cards, right? these pieces of technology, so we don't have to think about whether or not we should make that spend. And that leads us to fall for these other traps, these other heuristics, these value cues. And the pain of pain is really important to consider. It can be good and bad. You can decide whether or not to use it. We want you just to be conscious of you do it, doing it. Because there are two things that increase or decrease the pain of pain. One is the time between consumption and payment. And the other is how aware you are of the payment. We'll start with the time between consumption and payment. Imagine that you're going to go on a vacation. I talked to someone earlier who said that travel was something many of you are thinking about. You could pay for that vacation all in advance, right? Go to an all-inclusive, you just write a check a month beforehand. Then when you're there, when you're enjoying all the activities and you're you know, going to the bar, having a drink, going to the beach, getting a drink, you're going surfing and having a drink, all the things that are important, you won't be conscious of payment. You're just gonna enjoy it. Right? Whereas if you pay for it afterwards, you might think, while you're consuming it, oh, should I really spend this $10 on this drink that I'm gonna leave half of? Or when you're looking at the bill, like was that scuba trip really worth like 200 extra dollars? So it reduces your enjoyment. And now the least enjoyable time, the most painful time, 
is when we pay at the moment when we're consuming. And Dan has a, a, a fun experiment-ish thing he did with that. Uh, before that, so, so think again about the vacation. Imagine you're going on a, some um, cruise, and you can pay either six months beforehand or the moment you get off the boat. Which one is the more rational one? If you, if you pay six months beforehand, you don't have the money, right? So if you pay the moment you get off the boat, you get to use the money for six more months, you get interest and, and so on. More rational. Which one would cause you greater enjoyment of the vacation? Right? Imagine that you pay the moment you get off the boat. Imagine it's the last day of the cruise, and you know that tomorrow you're paying $5,000 for this thing. How, how, how much fun will the last day of the cruise be? Right? You, you would probably spend the whole day in the buffet trying to amortize your investment and get some of your money. They don't need carbs back. in LA. Yeah. They don't need um, so, so, so the pain, the pain of paying is about is about saliency and time of consumption. So imagine that tonight you're going to dinner. It's going to be an expensive dinner. It's going to be two hundred dollars, and you could decide to pay either with cash or with credit cards. Which one would feel worse? Cash. Why? Why, why would the cash feel so much worse? Because you see it leaving, right? It, it's not because you don't know what the price is. The prices are printed on the menu. You know what the prices are. But, but when you have to part with money at the time of consumption, now with, what credit cards do is they separate time of consumption from payment. Right? At the end of the meal, you just sign. You're not really paying now. You'll pay at another time. Having to do it at the same time creates higher level of pain of paying. Now, we could make it worse. Imagine that we had a restaurant and we found out that people on average, people uh, pay $50 and eat 50 bites. And I came to you and I said, because you're such a wonderful human being, I'll give you a discount. It will be 50 cents per bite. Half price. And not only that, you can, uh, you'll only pay for the bites you eat. The bites you don't eat, you don't have to pay. I'll serve you your dish, I'll stand back, I'll take a little pencil, and every time you take a bite, <laughs> I'll mark a little V on my notebook. Uh, how much fun will that meal be? Right? Uh, actually, when I, teach, when I teach in my class on the psychology of money, I bring pizza and I charge the students 25 cents per bite. What do you think happens? Huge bites. Huge bites. And, and not only do they take huge bites, they take huge bites, they don't enjoy it, and they don't learn. Right? You would think... You would think they would take one huge bite, they would figure out this is not a good strategy, and then they would move to small bites. But it's tough, right? Because you sit there with the pizza, and you could push a little bit more to make it a bit more efficient, right? But then, of course, you don't enjoy the whole process. Now, now the thing about the pain of paying is that we could dial it up or dial it down depending on what result we want. My guess, actually, as you said in the beginning, that many of you are unaware of the price of energy at your home. Uh, if we wanted to dial up the pain of paying for energy, what, what would you do? So the first thing is we could cancel automatic uh, billing. Right? It turns out that if you get people to do automatic billing, energy consumption goes up by about 4%. Why? Because even having to write a check once a month for your energy bill gets you to think about this. 
right? If it's coming automatically from your checking account, you think a little bit less about this. But of course, as you said, if we had the energy meter in the middle of the house, that would be uh, more intense. And if you had to feed it cash every morning, right? It wouldn't take credit cards, only cash. That would be much more, much more effective. That would be an example of dialing the pain of paying up. We can also think about how we want to dial the pain of paying down, right? So um, if you go on vacation, you might not want to think about every small thing and basically reduce your consumption. From time to time, it might be good not to think about the pain of paying. The thing is that with the technology of payment, we can change the pain of paying. Now, just to think about this, most of our attempts right now with technology is to eliminate the pain of paying. Think about cash, debit card, credit cards, Android Pay, Apple Pay, Amazon Go. You know, all of those things are designed to get people not to think about money. And as we get these systems that get us not to think about money, we of course spend more and save less with greater with greater risk. So the pain of paying is is one such challenge. Yeah, and you know there are studies. What one thing that really caught my eye is there are studies about credit cards that it does make people spend more, tip more, and they're more likely to forget how much they spent. And the amazing thing to me is it's not just credit cards. It can be only credit card paraphernalia. They did an experiment where they put out like a little Mastercard sticker and the charge machine, and just that triggering visual of it made people still spend more, tip more, and forget. Right? It's like Pavlovian, except we're not drooling over like meat or a picture of Idris Elba. We're drooling over credit cards. Right? And it's amazingly powerful. And it's important. I think you know, Dan mentioned the, the vacation thing. If you choose to increase it, great. But it's being conscious that that's happening. And so often we aren't. And someone else was talking to me today. I was asking about some of your financial concerns. Many of you might be starting to think about investment or even retirement on the horizon, never too early to think about. Think about your like a 401k you get from a company. You choose the plan, and there's a management fee, right? Let's say it's 1%, just to, for a round number, and imagine you had a million dollar portfolio. First, buy more than one book. But second of all, million dollar portfolio, right? But 1% management fee, you never see that 1%, except that one time you sign up. Year to year, you never even are conscious of it, right? You see your growth. What if instead, at the end of the year, you had to write a check to your broker for $10,000? Wouldn't you more likely question whether or not it was a good investment, question how he or she were doing. We don't, and again, that's the way technology is going. And when we want to remain optimistic, there are tech programs and products that are trying to do the opposite, that are trying to help people save, that are using your goals to deduct money automatically, and that you, know, you can split your payment. Maybe you have some of your money go to your checking and some of your saving, but a lot of the things people are pursuing, probably in an incubator coworker space like this, uh, decrease the pain of pain. Um, another thing that people, were telling me was a concern of theirs among this group is uh, real estate. Um, I live in the New York City area, so I can say I feel your pain, no pun intended, but it's expensive here, right? But it's something to be concerned about, like these prices seem crazy. And there was a study in Tucson, Arizona a while ago. The prices will make you cry, <laughs> but it was, they took a bunch of realtors, right? Professionals who should know everything about real estate, and they brought them into a home they had set up. Right? And they presented them with the, you know, the MLS figures, the neighborhood, the schools, the construction, all the important details. Right? And they also showed them a listing price. And then they said, what do you think this home is worth? And these are people whose profession is to judge the value of a home. Now those that saw a listing price of like 120,000 had one figure. Those that saw a listing price of 150,000 had a slightly higher figure. 
Those that saw 200,000, even higher. Their valuing of that place should have nothing to do with the listing price. It's totally irrelevant. It should be what is the home worth. And yet they were affected by seeing that listing price. Now to their credit, for those of you that work with realtors, they were affected less than lay people. Right? Lay people that saw the same thing were much more affected, but the fact that just the listing price, the first number they saw, changed their valuation was incredibly powerful to me. And, and I wonder what, what is that all about? So it has a couple of things. One is it's really hard for us to figure out what something is worth, right? Anything, right? Think about anything and you say, how do you translate whatever it is to a monetary value? An orange, right? How do you, how do you figure out what an orange is worth in, in dollars? Now, you can say, I remember what it used to cost, I can predict what it will cost tomorrow, but what is it worthwhile in terms of pleasure? Really, really hard to figure out. So what do we do? We use kind of all kind of value cues to figure things out. Um, and we'll talk about a few of them, but one of them is relativity. Relative to what? So in housing again, imagine two people who move to Pittsburgh. One is moving from somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Des Moines. Des Moines, okay. <laughs> somebody is moving from Des Moines, somebody is moving from LA. Those people who move from Des Moines and LA are used to very different property value. But they all move now to Pittsburgh. What happens to their decisions about what kind of house they will buy? Turns out the people who move from LA buy way too big of a house. The people who move from Des Moines buy too small of a house. And the people who move from LA uh, choose not to commute much. The people who move from Des Moines choose to commute an awful lot and then they suffer uh, uh, much more. By the way, if they rent for two years, this effect goes away, right? It's not about wealth. It's about the fact that we're, they're comparing prices to irrelevant things, right? If you're in Pittsburgh, whatever market you came from is, is irrelevant. Um, another, another example for this is to think, think about something like the first iPhone, right? So the, the iPhone 10 just came out. Think about the first iPhone. Anybody here bought the first iPhone when it came out? How, mu how much did you pay? Am I asking? Do you remember? Well, it was six hundred dollars. So, okay. So when when Steve when Steve Jobs did his big Steve Jobs thing with the turtleneck and all that, he was like he described this amazing thing. Said the experts said it should be worth nine hundred dollars, but for you six hundred dollars. It went, went crazy, right? But no one had ever heard of an iPhone before. Right? How could you even judge what that's worth? And and then yep. you do a better job describing. So, so here's here's the story with the iPhone. The iPhone started at $600, and then a few weeks later they said, sorry, 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 it's only $400. Now, now think, about, think about the idea. So imagine a world in which they introduced the iPhone at $600 and then they reduce it to $400, versus another world in which you start by introducing it at $400. In which of those two worlds is the, the iPhone at $400 seems like it's a better deal? Right. Because, because why? Because the iPhone can do two things that we couldn't do before. We could do this, and we could do this. That's, that's it, right? And now, how much is this worth? This was before Angry Birds, before there was like a real reason to, to do this. Like, you know, it's very hard to figure out how much it's worth, right? The thing itself, the thing itself, hard to figure out what it's worth. So what do we do? We use cues from around it. And if something used to cost $600, now it's $400, it has to be a good, good value. Right? And 
uh, I know at least one person here is an artist. There was a, a really wonderful uh, piece of research on how people evaluate art. And what they did was they, they showed people a, a, a painting uh, with a frame. Um, and they either gave them the frame as it is, or they filled it with lead, so it was heavier. And they asked people to pick up the picture, put it around, look at it, and then put it back. Guess what? Uh, the frame with the lead got people to evaluate the picture as worth, as worth more. Uh, by the way, people did not get the, the frame. So it wasn't as if they, they wanted the frame that was, that was heavier. It's, it's a cue. You can imagine how if you lift something and it's hefty, all of a sudden your evaluation uh, changes because of that. And that brings us to, to another uh, value cue that is about fairness. Mm -hmm. So imagine that you come to, to Durham, where I live, and you look for a parking spot. You find a parking spot by a parking meter, and you look in your pockets and you don't have a quarter. And I happen to pass by, and you say, excuse me, do you have a quarter? And I say, yes, I have a quarter. I'll sell it to you for a dollar. <laughs> and most people say, some, they curse, and they say, no, I'll take my chances. I'm not paying you a dollar for a quarter. It just seems immoral. Scenario number two, you come, you park, you don't have a quarter, I pass by. You say, excuse me, do you have a quarter? And I say, I don't have a quarter, but there's a bank four blocks down the street. If you want, I'll run very fast to that bank. I'll change a dollar for quarters. I'll run very fast back. But if I do this thing, how do you feel about giving me a dollar? Now people feel really good. It's a great deal. <laughs> now, in every objective way, you're worse off in the second case than in the second, right? You have to wait. You get sweaty coins. <laughs> but why are you happier? Because somebody ran for you, right? It's not about the thing. The thing is a quarter. But it's the fact that there was more effort involved in this. Now, this basically suggests that when we get something, whatever it is, we don't just evaluate the thing we get, we evaluate the amount of effort that went into it. Which doesn't make sense. I mean, think about it. People will pay more to a locksmith who fumbles around and breaks some things and takes an hour than someone who opens a door instantaneously. Is someone will study, someone... Will but by the way, it, it means we pay more to incompetent people. Right. right, just to be clear. Which is, if you're a lawyer or in show business, that's great, but it's a problem. I mean, there's a data recovery study where people would have their computer data wiped and they would pay more to someone who took longer than someone who did it right away. You're paying by the hour, right? which really what the value is, do I want my data back? Like, do I want to get into my home? What's it worth for me to get into my house? Or a, a rainy day umbrella that used to cost five but someone raises it to 10. Is it worth $10 on that rainy day for the umbrella? Or are you going to punish the price and say that's not a fair price to raise it up and then punish yourself by being out in the rain? And that's often what happens is that we, when we don't just have opportunity costs, we inject fairness and our sense of fairness is based on how much effort we see into that price. And it can throw us off assessing true value. And now there are, are industries that are aware of this. There are industries that benefit from this by what we call transparency, which is essentially showing effort. Right? And uh, you know, I'll use your example. What is the what is an industry that shows transparency a lot? 
show effort. What, what yeah, industries sorry. are great in showing us the effort that went into something? Think about restaurants. They basically go into length to describe to you how many hours something was marinated. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a, deliberate, it's a deliberate effort. Another one is consulting. Anybody here is in consulting? A few? Okay, there you go. Um, uh, but, you know, you hire, you hire McKinsey, and no matter what you hire them for, like, all you care is the recommendation, right? You want, like, what should I do? But you get a 500-page PowerPoint presentation <laughs> that, that you really don't care so much about, but it describes the effort. And, and what industries are terrible in, in showing us effort? Things that are online. Right, you don't see the effort. It's why you know companies like Kayak, right? They have their progress bar, right? Or there was a dating uh, site that there was a study about. They didn't just show you your 20 matches. They showed you the 250 people you didn't match with. Right? Which, which by the way, is easier to show you, right? You say, oh my goodness, they really know me. Look at all these terrible people. I, they, they really understand. They really understand me. <laughs> but here's here's an interesting, um, maybe um, kind of. Uh, related to LA. Um, do you remember the, the story with Netflix? <coughs> uh, Netflix used to have a service that would mail people DVDs. And then they started streaming a little bit on the side. And then uh, at some point, streaming was becoming bigger. And they said, let's split it into two products. Let's have the streaming service and the, the DVD service. Most people would want one or the other. And what they did was, if you wanted both of them, the price would go a little higher up. But most people just wanted one or the other. And they announced this change, and Wall Street was incredibly excited about this. Because they said that the, the revenues would go up dramatically. And, they, and then they started this new pricing approach, and about a million people left them. Why did people leave? because it was unfair, right? People said, you used to charge me to, together $15 or whatever it was, now it's 16, it's true, I only need one of them, but there's something unfair about this. And people punished them, and they punished them by leaving, right? It's like not getting an umbrella in the rain, right? Netflix is still an amazing deal at $16 as it is in, in $15, right? It's an amazing deal, but Nevertheless, people said, I'm offended by this. By the way, what saved Netflix? Original programs. Um, how, much, how much do you think it cost Netflix? I'm, I'm just kind of uh, uh, general, general statistics. How much do you think it cost Netflix to, do, to, to rent a season of Breaking Bad? About 100 million. How much do you think it cost them to produce a series, a, a seri uh, um, the season of um, House of Cards? 100 million. So the reality was that this, this frame of Netflix original was not really a financial issue, but it made us think about Netflix not just about streaming video, right? The moment, the moment they were just streaming video, we said, how much would they charge us? Well, they're not doing much. Right. They're just streaming, and we had no idea how much, how much they're paying for it. The moment they started talking about Netflix original, they moved to becoming producers, right? right. And all of a sudden, fairness increased dramatically. Right, they had to get studios and everything. It's like, imagine there's a trend now of pay what you want restaurants, and these places open up, and I think there was one in, in LA for a while, and they would open up. No one ever went into a restaurant and paid nothing. 
they ended up averaging about like a decent amount because you saw all that effort. Now imagine instead there was a pay what you want movie theater. You walk in and you sit down and what does it cost them like to have it it's still projecting, they haven't changed what they have to do, they don't have to get extra ingredients. Same thing, Netflix, when they just stream the movie, doesn't, they don't have to make any effort because they weren't explaining what went into that. Yep. Whereas people understood the process of production and renting out a, a studio space. Yep. By the way, do you know why, uh, talking about movie theaters, why, why is the popcorn size so large in the movie theater? Because they don't want us to compare it to a reasonable size. Right, so by, by making it so big, it's hard to compare and to say this is outrageous. It's just, it's just a very different experience. Uh, so we don't, we don't compare it directly. Um, That's a, a, a good thing about showing effort because a lot of what we, we ultimately come down on here is about showing the effort, showing the value, and communicating that. Right, like in our culture, we don't really talk about money much. I mean, we'll get to this, but like, just showing the value of your spending and your savings is important, um, you know, which sort of brings us to this study that you did in Kenya. Okay, so th this is one of my uh, favorite studies. Um, this was a study in which we tried to get very poor people to save a little bit. These are people who live in Kibera, Islam in Kenya. They live on about $10 a week, very, very poor people. And they basically have no extra income. Right? So these are people who live hand to mouth, spend everything that they get. Um, and what happens to, to people at that level of poverty is that if something bad happens, things start deteriorating. Right? So imagine you have no excess income and you get sick for two weeks, now you have to borrow. If you're in Kibera, you borrowed maybe 10% a week. And let's say that uh, two weeks later you're healthy again, wonderful news, but you're two weeks behind plus interest rate, how do you get out of it? So, so we try to get people to save a little bit of money for a rainy day. Now, what are the design principles of doing something that would get people to save? The first principle is we want good behaviors to be easy and bad behaviors to be a little harder. So we created a system where it was easy to put money in and hard to get it out. We, we teamed up with M-Pesa. M-Pesa is the payment company in Kenya. In Kenya, about 20% of the people have bank accounts, about 80% of the people have M-Pesa accounts, and people could text money into their saving account, but every night the money moved from their M-Pesa account to an investment bank. It was invested in the Kenyan stock market. Now they couldn't take it back through M-Pesa. They had to take a bus, go to the city, fill a form, go to the bank, fill a form, wait an hour, get the money, take a bus back. It could take them five hours. And we wanted this, right? We didn't want Poor people have emergencies all the time, right? Small emergencies often. And we didn't want every small emergency to deplete their savings. So we wanted easy in, hard out. We gave that system to lots and lots of people. And then we added things to it, a randomized control trial. Some people just got that system with nothing else, control condition. Some people got that system plus a weekly reminder that said, try and save 100 shillings, about a dollar this week. Some people got the same text message but it was phrased as if it came from their kids. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. This is little Joey, whatever the name of the kid was. Try and save 100 shillings this week for the future of our family. Some people got a 10% match. Save up to 100 shillings, we'll give you 10%. Some people got a 20% match. 
Two other groups also got 10 and 20% match, but they got this match together with loss aversion. Loss aversion is the idea that we hate losing more than we enjoy gaining, right? So you lose $1,000 that's really miserable, you gain $1,000 that's happy, but it doesn't make up for it psychologically. You need to make about $2,000 to make up for a loss of 1000 not financially, but from your psychological well-being. So we said usually when we match money, match comes at the end, people don't see the amount they didn't match. Imagine you're in a 10% condition and you put 40 shillings in. You put 40 shillings, we give you four. You've given up on six. If you put 100, you will get 10. You, you gave up on six, but you don't see it. So created this pre-matching where we put 10 shillings or 20 shillings, the whole amount in the beginning of the week. People put what they wanted and then we took back what they didn't match. So imagine again you're in the 10% condition and you put 40 shillings in, but we put 10 in, you put 40, and then we leave four in and we take six. So financially, pre-match or post-match is the same thing, but in the pre-match you get to see money leaving your account. You get to see the money coming, you get to see the money you did not <coughs> match. And then we had another condition, we made a coin about this size, and the coin had 24 numbers etched on the edge of it. And every week we asked them to take a knife and scratch the number for that week. Week 1, 2, up to 24. Scratch it this way if you didn't save, and this way if you saved. Now, think about all of those methods. Which one of them creates the highest level of savings? When, when we ask people what they think, not people who come to have a discussion about the psychology <laughs> of money, but when we ask people what they think, people both in the US and Kenya think that 20% will create lots of savings, 10 less <coughs> and zero less. People think coin, kids, text doesn't matter. And people think that loss aversion will make a small difference. What actually happens? So first of all, just giving people that system works, right? It means that people want a system that will kind of force us to behave better. We want a system that would get us to not be able to fail for temptation all the time. <clears throat> then adding a weekly reminder helps a lot, right? That's good news. 10% at the end of the week helps a bit more. 20% at the end of the week, just like 10%, doesn't really matter at all. Incentive does matter, but 10 on 20% doesn't matter. 10% in the beginning of the week helps some more, loss aversion works. 20% beginning of the week, just like 10%. Again, no incentive difference. And kids were just like 10 and 20% in the beginning of the week, which is kind of an amazing thing, right? It means that we can use kids or, you know. Careful uh, with your language, Dan. Yes. Uh, well, utilize, no, anyway, you could. They're a financial decision, kids. That's, that's all right. it is. There's no that's emotions right. involved. That's right. Uh, so, so it means that, that we can get parents to think about their kids and think about the future and save more at the same degree that 20% plus loss aversion does. But the big surprise in the study was the coin condition. Uh, the coin basically doubled savings compared to everything else. And the question, of course, is why? And, and I'll tell you how I started thinking about this coin. I was in Soweto. Soweto is Islam in South Africa. And I walk around Soweto and I see a father uh, buying funeral insurance for a week, right? These are very poor people. Funerals in South Africa are very expensive. People can spend up to two years of income. And this guy buys funeral insurance for a week, which means it will cover him only if he dies in the next seven days, <laughs> right? 
These are very, very poor people. They buy small amount of soap and small amount of insurance and so on. And, and he, takes, he takes the certificate, the paper certificate, and he gives it in a very ceremonious way to his son. And, and when he does this, I think, you know, imagine a breadwinner of a very poor family is diverting money into savings or insurance. What is the family going to see tonight? They're going to see less. Right? If you're very poor, they're going to see less tonight. If you're not as poor, it will be this week. But no matter your wealth, if you're a breadwinner and you get some positive reinforcement from your family, from putting bread on the table, whatever, toys for the kids, whatever it is, if you're diverting money into insurance or saving, the family sees less. Right? And, and what his father did was to say, it's not less, it's different. Here is the certificate. And the coin was the same thing. Uh, people in Kibera don't go and visit each other's huts. It wasn't for other people. It was for the family to realize that even if there's less food on the table, it's somewhere else, somewhere tangible that everybody could, could see. And, and the bigger thought here is to think about the role of saving in society. So a thousand years ago, how did we used to save? Not we. How did people used to save? Basically with goats or, you know, livestock. Right? This is what, what wealth was. Wealth was basically livestock. Now, if you have wealth in goats, it means you can come home from work and you can see how many goats your neighbor has and you could compete on who has more goats. We could compete on savings. Then we invented money. Then we invented digital money. And we took this incredible important activity called saving and insurance and we made it invisible. So how much do any of you know about the saving rates of your neighbors? What do you know? How much they spend? So we have spending and we have savings and, and we see spending and it's become incredibly visible and we can see what other people are doing and we have saving and it's invisible and we don't see it. How can we get people to be motivated by that? The coin was one, one example for this. Uh, there was a very sad study last year that showed that when people win the lottery, their neighbors start spending more money. So much that some of them go bankrupt, right? And, and, and there's a reason for that, right? The, the temptation to catch up with our friends, right? And our neighbors is just very, very high. And by the way, these were Canadians. Like, <laughs> the, good, the good people. Um, so, so Celine Dion say, is Canadian, let's not go too far. <laughs> With okay. good people. Um, so, so, of course, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we have a website and we put everybody's saving rates out there. But here's, here's a study that is a little bit like the coin condition. In this, in this study, um, you take kids on the day that they are born and you randomly open to half of them college savings accounts. Half yes, half no. You put $500 in these college savings accounts, not enough to pay for college. And then you go and visit those kids when they're four years old and you test their cognitive and social skills. And guess what? The kids with college savings accounts perform better. How can it be? How can it be that these kids perform better? Do they know? They have no idea. But the parents know. Once a month, the parents get a statement that says that this little kid, while still in diapers, has a college savings account. And the parents read a little bit more to them, they buy them a few more books. Not big steps. But over four years, it makes a difference. 
Based on, on that and the coin, we uh, managed to convince the Israeli government in the beginning of this year to open a college savings account for every kid on the day that they are born, from January 1st. And when we started this process, the people from the Ministry of Finance said, let's just reduce the cost of college. But it's not the same thing, right? Putting a little bit of money in a college savings account from the day that kids are born is a frame, it's a frame of mind. It's a, it's a mindset. It's not just about, about the money. So when we think about this, about what is observable and what is hidden, it's not just to society at large. It's not I'm recommending that you start posting on Facebook uh, the worth of your 401k, but it's also for us to understand ourselves at the level of the family, and all of those things could make a difference. Right. We don't talk about money with our neighbors. We don't think about it. And if we just stop to think now and then, right, like just see a coin that reminds us to save, or we feel a little bit about our, the commission going to our uh, 401k broker, we just stop to think about it now and then. Not all the time, right? We don't really want you to become like misers and freaks, but now and then you think about things, you'll find that gradually it will make a difference. Um, because we spend so much mental energy on money. Right? No one ever dies and lays on their deathbed wishing they spent more time with their money. Right? They wish they did more beautiful things. And so if we can just save you 5%, 10%, a little bit of your mental energy and your time, by spending a little time to think about it, you'll save a lot of time in the long run. So our hope is that this book will clue you into some of the things that you're doing so that in the future you can create personal systems and we can create systems for our culture uh, to improve spending and saving. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.